folks, freaks, and fans. Welcome to Crap Beer's only voice of reality. To the podcast with the guts to face failure in the beer industry with a smirk and a grin. To the place where we can share the honest truth of what really happens in the P&Ls and the spreadsheets of America's beer makers. Welcome to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. With each new season of the show, I've encouraged evolution, growth, and a warm embrace with change. Now over 40 episodes in, my guests and I have honed our focus and goals to make you the best you can be in your career. What you're about to experience is season five, 10 interviews with experienced operators that lived right through it. This season's guests will peel back the layers of bullshit and get right to the truth. The truth that the beer publications, the Brewers Association, and of course, those hypey ass breweries that act all successful on social media do not want you to know. That the majority of breweries in the US are not making any money at all and have absolutely no chance of ever doing so. But if you're looking for a roadmap to financial success in craft beer, then you've come to the right place. This season, we'll hear from breweries from Portland to Atlanta, past and present, to help teach you how not to start a damn brewery. And I walk out and the line is going all the way down to the sidewalk. I couldn't see him from going out the front door. All this huge group of my best friends in the industry were all sitting there. And of course, I was balding. And uh, so it was it was very emotional. Few people have been or ever will be as connected in the craft beer industry as Chris Black. If you haven't met him or heard of him, then you surely caught wind that downtown Denver had a little beer bar called Falling Rock Tap House for 24 years. In 1997, what we think of as the craft beer industry hadn't even begun yet. With only about 800 breweries in the U.S., opening a beer bar with 69 taps of what we call craft beer was something like an anomaly. And while it's hard to believe in 2023, even opening a craft beer in downtown Denver sounded like a risky and unproven idea. But it's no exaggeration to say that Falling Rock and Chris Black were an integral part of crafting the shape of our industry. While he had a vibrant and loyal business year-round, Falling Rock was a mandatory stop for everyone visiting the Great American Beer Festival, just right down the street from him every year. Unlike the average beer bar in your city, Falling Rock didn't ride the wave of craft beer. It was the moon that created the tides. From humble beginnings to ascending to the top of the craft beer heap, he has seen and heard more about beer than J. Edgar Hoover did about our personal lives. His understanding of the business of craft beer is as wide as it is deep. And yet, in June of 2021, after steady declines and a grim forecast of the future, Chris, his brothers, and their loyal fan base and suppliers close the taps on his iconic tap house for the very last time. This is the story of Chris Black and the rise and fall of what we can only hope was his first craft beer bar, the Falling Rock Tap House. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed spending a couple of hours talking to one of the few people in this industry I would call my craft beer hero. And when you get a guy like Chris to share his time and insights, you give him the microphone, you sit back, and you interrupt as little as possible. And that's the treat you'll get to experience in the fourth segment. It runs a little longer than I normally do, but I just couldn't bear to cut any of his opinions and thoughts. And now, Chris Black. Chris, I want to thank you for sharing today. The topics that we are talking about, they definitely aren't for everybody. It's definitely one of those things that takes a special kind of person to be able to share and dig and talk about failure and success. And obviously, you're one of those people, and I'm super glad. So thank you very much for giving us your time today. For having me on. It's a lot of fun. It's, I love talking about this stuff. I've been doing it for a long time. So uh, it's second nature to me. You have. And so those people that don't know, in my personal opinion, you're one of those people that didn't just enjoy the fruits of the craft beer scene, but really and truly laid the groundwork and then obviously throughout the run-up really shaped it and we're just a just a figure so even if i disagree with some of your opinions i have to respect them and so i'm glad that you came on it's okay to disagree <laughs> i mean it, it's okay to have a spirited debate on that because everybody's got different dogs in the hunt here and they may have different opinions on it but you know i've done kind of all three 
sides of this equation. I've worked for distributors. I've worked for the breweries themselves. I've worked owning my own place. I've worked for other people on the retail side of it and work for just, you know, just a little bit of everything. So I have a little bit of a different opinion because I, you know, I understand a lot of uh, where people on the different sides are coming from. So I, I think that that's helped. I did one interview a couple of years ago, right after uh, I published some stuff and he, you know, really got in my face about it and it was wonderful. It was, it was really a lot of fun. I had a great time. Good, actually. So regular listeners of the show will remember that the fourth segment, I typically get into sort of like the future of the craft beer and the, everyone's opinion. Thankfully, you have some things on the internet that we get to use that uh, are some opinions that I have not had on the show before simply because I haven't had somebody from your perspective. And so I would love to hear some of those dissenting opinions and actually uh, made a note to ask you about those. So when we get into that one, I'm definitely going to hear about it. But right now, what I'd really like to do is, you know, obviously, I've done a lot of research. I've been to your place, but not everybody has. So tell us kind of how you got started in the industry or what started from the beginning. How'd you fall in love with craft beer in general? Well, when I was like 13, I had uh, I was sentenced to five years of living in Baton Rouge. My, my dad was work, worked for a very large company, Fortune 5 company, and he was an attorney, and he was doing a whole bunch of work in the late 60s. He was based out of LA, but he was doing work out of the Bay Area, and my dad was like one of the squarest dudes on the planet. In 1968, the nearest hotel to where he was doing business was a place called uh, the Durant. It's across the street from UC Berkeley. So my dad being the squarest dude, there's no way he was staying at ground zero for the counterculture. Mm-hmm. So he commuted the extra half an hour into San Francisco and stayed at the Mark Hopkins. When Fritz Maytag bought the Anchor Brewing Company in 1965, he had five draft accounts, and one of them was the lobby bar in the Mark Hopkins. And my dad fell in love with Anchor Steam. So fast forward a few years, and while we were sentenced to Baton Rouge, a grocery store chain opened up there, and they actually brought in Anchor Steam, and my dad was just crazy. Like, I have to buy some of this. So he bought two six-packs, which I had never really seen him do. (laughs) And it was like $7 for a six-pack, you know, in 1976. So I I definitely wanted to try it because I'd always, you know, taken a little sip of his beers and stuff like that. I really wasn't impressed with him. That was the first one where I remembered that, wait a second, this is different. I mean, he warned me ahead of time. He's like, you're not going to like this. It's kind of bitter. And I'm like, you know, hey, that, that's kind of the things that I like. So uh, I fell in love with it. Then I kind of put that in the back of my head. And in between my junior and senior high school, I did five weeks in Europe. And um, three weeks was in Salzburg. And I was attending summer school at the University of Salzburg in German uh, language, culture, and history. And so it was three hours during the day. And the rest of the day, you could just go screw off in town. And I... Uh, I Fell in, really fell in love with beer there, drinking at the Stiegelkeller up in the outshot of uh, town there. It was it was just a game changer. I just I just couldn't get enough when I came back. You know, hopefully nobody under the age of 21 is listening to this, but uh, <laughs> I found out that uh, at that time, the drinking age was 18 and I was still 17. If you were willing to pay six or seven bucks for a six pack of beer and you acted like you knew you were doing Nobody carded you on that stuff. They always carded you on the cheap stuff. So I, you know, I just kept looking for those flavors that I experienced there. We're in Salzburg in Austria, and we were over in, in Munich, take the train up on the weekends and go to Munich, uh, to the breweries up there. And just came back looking for those same kind of things. And uh, I uh, went to college in Austin at the University of Texas. I uh, started working uh, my junior year at a very early beer bar, Maggie Mays, which is still sort of there. It's a little bit changed, but, you know, it was a very early beer bar. 
down there on 6th Street. Got to know an awful lot of people in the industry. And when I graduated from the university in 1986, there were really no jobs to be had. It was a bunch of a lot of hiring freezes on my degree would have uh, let me go work for the government pretty well. Had a degree in cartography and remote remote sensing, so satellite and aerial photography interpretation and map making, which would have been really great to work for either the highway department or some other stuff. But everybody had a hiring freeze on them. So I just went back into the bars in Houston, a very early beer bar in Houston, had set up called the Ginger Man down in Rice University Village. And, which I think um, is still there, right? Uh, actually closed down uh, just before we did. I think it was uh, May of 21. They decided not to reopen after COVID. I think their lease was basically towards the end, and they didn't feel like renegotiating that at that time. I was there probably within two weeks of them opening up. A friend of mine went to Rice University, and we were in town for the weekend, and we were looking for a place to go. And he said, hey, there's this new place really close to campus. So we went over there, and uh, I got to know Bob Precious, who was the founder and owner there. When I got out, I helped him uh, shift his focus from just having a lot of beer to having a lot of beer. craft beer because at that time, I mean, in 1983, the only thing that was available would have been, oh, you could get a little bit of anchor, but you could only get the things over 5%. So that was Foghorn and Liberty. Couldn't get steam on tap, but you could get a little bit of that. You could get Spaten came into the market. Guinness came into the market towards the end of 83. Bass, Polaner at the end of 1983. And then in about 85, when Sierra Nevada opened up their Newbury in Chico, we could start getting uh, Sierra Nevada on tap. And then we started to get just a few other things. I mean, gosh, Ginger Man, we, he started with about four taps. We went up to like about oh, uh, <laughs> 13, 15 of them. And then I helped with the build out. We, we took over the kitchen and turned it into a cooler and uh, went up to like about 35 or so. And then also helped with uh, building out the second cooler in the old garage on the back, the end of the little driveway there. What was the concept? He wanted to do worldwide beers and unique and esoteric stuff and was going to be primarily bottles with a bit of draft? When he started out, it was primarily bottles, having about 20 or 30 bottles of beer. And he only had a couple of drafts. He had a single keg keg box that had Guinness in it, so he could run that at a separate temperature. And then he had a keg box that I think he could squeeze about five kegs into and because you know of course you had the ubiquitous shiner bach which was you know the only thing a different color you know coming out of texas yeah you know obviously that that changed throughout at least the 2000s and maybe even the early 2010s but i hear now it's going to get leveled off but obviously you know the margins on bottles are kind of shit for the most part would did that work or or did he really even think about it just like this is cool i'm just gonna do it and then it evolved to oh man we can make more money with draft and that's why he kept adding them or i mean that's what i kept saying was like you're gonna make more money with draft you're gonna turn it over faster people don't really care about the bottles near as much even at that time in 85 so it's like this is where the focus this is where the excitement is this is where the energy is you know this is where you need to head and then he added on a couple of refrigerators on the on the back side of the wall and literally poked shanks through the wall, through the back of the refrigerator, you know, so you could have a couple more taps on the back wall. Sounds like half the breweries uh, I know, actually. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's pretty, yeah. You know, it was very much shoestring and, you know, making that big leap to building a cooler in the back. And literally, I mean, the Ginger Man is an old house. And and much like the rest of the construction in Houston, it's a house up on like cinder blocks. 
space on little pilings, everything like that. In order to put the cooler in there, we couldn't just drop the kegs on the floor of what used to be the kitchen. We had to build a raised floor. So we used two by sixes in there and put insulation below it. And then, I mean, we built it out of plywood and insulation. Hmm. and, you know, just kind of did it ourselves, you know, went up to like 32 because all of a sudden you could actually get, you know, a reasonable supply of some of those beers. There's early distributors, some small guys that were starting to carry some stuff, which was really uh, very exciting and a lot of fun. And, and you know, I helped build out the backyard, I built the fence, a lot of the, you know, shift to make the backyard and everything like that, built the, oh, the display cases in the front room and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we got up to the mid-90s, and my dad, you know, like I said, was working for this Fortune 5 company. And his he was starting to head towards retirement and was thinking, and his retirement financial people kind of came to him and said, you know, here's this one pile of money that you have to give to the government, no matter what you do. Here's this pile of money that's going to make the income you want to have every month. And here's this other pile over here, and you can either give it to the government or you could, like, you know, find something else to do. So my dad decided that he would give it to myself and my brother and, and eventually to our third brother. My middle brother, Steve, was about uh, four years younger than I am. He would give it to us for us to do something that we had been, you know, doing for other people because, you know, I worked at the junior man for, you know, one year the first time and then a year again, a couple of years later. I was working for different distributors and importers. So my brother had started working there and he ended up working there in Houston for a couple of years. And then when they opened up Austin, he became the general manager up there and helped do the build out up there in Austin. And years later, I think a movie came out and it had a key line in it that, I mean, summed up my dad's opinion about giving us the money. And the, the money was called Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and the line, the line was like, so you're saying there's a chance because he figured there was some sort of chance of him getting some sort of return on it over giving it just straight up to the government because he knew he'd never see that money again. Well, either way, you'd get so education, any, right? And like experience something yes. interesting in the world. My parents, my dad and my mom, who are still both alive, they're 86 and 87 right now. And they live in the, oh, down in the uh, south of Houston in uh, League City. They were very proud of the place. My dad would always cut out articles he would see in newspapers that mentioned this. You know, it was kind of a leap of faith for us to do it. He figured we'd go do something in like San Antonio since there really wasn't anything going out. There was what, hills and dales way out on the northwest side here near UTSA. About the only thing going on craft beer wise, other than that, was a kangaroo court down on the uh, river walk there. And that was kind of a never mind, we'll move on. But <laughs> yeah. so, two questions. One, obviously, from a resume perspective, looking back, I think that you, you definitely had a good experience. You're there from the beginning of. You know, what, not necessarily the end opening, but the early parts of uh, Ginger Man. You worked in the distro side. You experienced beer in, in different areas. I mean, you kind of had that resume that, you know, a lot of the guys back then did. We we want to make and sell beer that we can't find otherwise. And so you sort of drove a new ocean um, of, of, of competition and, and commerce. But how did you have the confidence to go, oh, I can fucking do this. It can't be that hard. Well, I mean, I mean, the, e- the easiest way to put it is I was – very involved. I mean, I helped an awful lot of people in Texas design their draft systems, install their draft systems. During some of that time, I, I was there helping out when the Mucky Duck got opened up there in Houston. I worked there a couple of times, too, in between distribution jobs. Uh, there's uh, Rusty and Teresa are still very, very good friends. And, you know, I kind of gleaned some stuff from that. My brother was working for the Ginger Man as a manager. And and we just decided we'd both been up to Denver a few times. One of the main 
breweries I worked with was Polaner out of Munich, and their headquarters in North America was up in the Denver area, down south part of the metro area. And I kept coming up here, and you know, when you go on a crew drive, the tradition would be that you go out selling all day. You have a recap meeting at the end so you can turn in all the orders and make sure it all gets delivered by the company that you were helping out. And then you would usually go out to dinner at some place that carried your beer. And then you go out to a bar that carried your beer. And, and then you go back to sleep and do it all over again the next day. And they always kept t- taking us straight back to the hotel after dinner. And he's like, Chris, there's no – all the places that carry – this beer are restaurants and their bar scenes are really like it's a place to go stash you for five minutes while they get your table and it's it's not a place where you just go sit down and have beer and so that kind of put the bug in my head that denver would be a really good place to open up a tap room because anybody that was interested in beer early on opened up a brewery because the laws were much more conducive to opening up a brewery here in in Colorado than they were in Texas. I mean, I don't think it's any different today. It's, it is, it's better, (laughs) but that's, they say guillotine's better than being burned alive. You know, that was also a key part of me wanting to open up in Denver was there was nobody doing that kind of thing. I mean, the closest thing would be like old Chicago would be a chain restaurant and, you know, they have different ideas and different reasons for putting beers on than I would. And the other thing was after 15 years of, trying to get some of the laws changed in Texas. Just, I didn't want to spend another 20 years doing that just to get to where people could really start. Did you have experience so, really with Denver or other than just going up there for work occasionally? It was, no. It was kind of a new, other than, exciting place to go. Yeah, okay. I figured I had one shot at getting the heck out of Houston. So <laughs> I decided to grab for that ring and go for it. <laughs> and uh, my, my brother, my brother was, you know, very uh, happy with that too. He was excited for that too. So we uh, told my dad, you know, he said, think about it. A couple months later, he says, where do you want to locate? I said, Denver. He looked at me like I had a couple of heads. The last time he was up here working for that company, he was here to shut down some very big things on the Western Slope. He stayed downtown at a very famous old hotel. And uh, basically downtown was trying to become a ghost town at that time in the late 80s. So I said, well, things have changed. They put the baseball stadium in uh, this last year. Downtown is really starting to hop, and I think we can get in there before it gets too horribly expensive. We were very fortunate coming here to find very plain Jane Dull building in a really good neighborhood, half a block from home plate of Coors Field with very reasonable rent rates. Turned out to be probably some of the best landlords we could have had in the whole city. That seems to be one of the big variables that keeps continually coming up in all of my interviews is the rent itself and kind of the structure. Obviously, you hadn't signed a bunch of leases at this stage in your career. So <laughs> we can we can argue that maybe you got a little bit lucky and maybe you were also a little bit savvy. But uh, oh, oh, I think we were very lucky. And I mean, there was a little bit. I mean, just, just dealing with the real estate people and looking at what they were asking for the lease It just looked a lot more straightforward. You know, there weren't a lot of fees or any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, basically it was up to us to do the maintenance on the building. I mean, you know. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why it was a little bit lower lease rate. But I was okay with that. I'm very handy. You know, I have, well, now I have a huge set of tools and everything (laughs) like that. won't go all Spicoli on that. But yeah, I mean, we sat down with them because... They, they had kind of stiff-armed us. They were taking a lot of offers on the property. And my brother and I just decided, you know, I had been a salesperson for a couple of years, so I just decided to go and 
and sell. So I told him that, hey, we would be in town. We'd love to meet up with them. And we were, I don't know, about five or six minutes into the pitch with them showing of the places that we had run before, you know, pictures of the two different ginger mans, a, a couple of the other bars that I'd worked with. And like, this is what our concept is. And five or six minutes into it, they're like, stop. Let's just start talking about this because <laughs> we, li- we like your idea because every other person was pitching them basically a shot in a beer bar. You know, it's like, we're going to have cheap drinks. We're going to be and all this kind of stuff. And we came with something that was just a little bit unique. And they also, because my landlord was one of the main liquor attorneys in the state, he also thought that we looked like people that he wasn't going to ever have to represent. And that turned out to be the case. 24 years, we had no violations, no problems. We had a very good reputation with the liquor enforcement people, actually. So whether that was deserved or not, you know, whatever. But. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned that you guys were doing something different than a, a shop bar. What was it? What was the pitch? Like, we're going to be one of the most world-renowned craft beer bars in the country in the next 15 years. What did you say to this guy? <laughs> well, you know, we, we just said, look, you know, at that time, it was all called microbreweries, of course. And I said, look, this is something that's going on. This is something that is very relevant to the Denver marketplace, the Colorado marketplace. There were you know, heck, at that time, there were already almost 60 breweries in the state, which in the state only had four and a half million people in it and had 60 breweries by that. Uh, this is in uh, late 1996. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were like, look, this is the kind of stuff. This is the atmosphere that we want to project. You know, we want to have a patio out on the front of this place. You know, it's not just about consuming mass quantities of alcohol. It's about savoring what you're drinking. We figured that we can use the ballpark to get the foot traffic to get people to see us because there's no way we're going to have the advertising budget to get people to see us otherwise. And that we can use the beer to fill in the gaps when there's not a baseball game. They just thought that was a pretty solid idea. You know, it was something a little bit different. And uh, they decided to take a chance on us. I mean, you know, all of our subsequent conversations were really good. I mean, he was an attorney and most of our negotiations for 25 years were almost totally done verbally. We made decisions verbally. And then he would come back, you know, he would ask me to repeat it back to him what I thought it meant. <laughs> he would agree with that. And then he would literally get, he would get somebody to write it up. And three or four weeks later, he says, is this what we discussed? Yes. Okay. And then we would go sign it. You had a it virtually handshake like, agreement with a fucking lawyer? How'd you manage that? With a, well, my dad was an attorney too, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It, 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 it just sounds so bizarre, but it, it literally for 25 years worked for all of us. I mean, we had we would have additions, addendums to the lease. It would be like a paragraph, like three sentences, and it was very easily done. There was one tiny disagreement at one point. I said, hey, remember this? And he goes, oh, crap, forgot about that part. Forget about the other thing I said. <laughs> wow, that's great. You know, they were, they were very good. I mean, our, our actual rent did not go up very much in 24 years. Now, that doesn't mean what we were paying didn't go up because that went up. You know, it was a triple net lease, which means, for those of you not familiar with that, means you pay all the uh, taxes on the building. Uh, you pay any fees on the building that come up and maintenance on the building if that's part of it. And uh, we were doing the maintenance. But the taxes went up through the roof because our, our building was only valued at about $400,000 when we moved in. And it sold a couple of weeks after we moved out for two and a half million dollars. Hmm. You know, that was their whole, their whole attitude about it is like, we're going to pay for this thing. They'll make a couple of bucks off of it every year. But, 
you know, when they retire and they cash out, that's when they're going to make their money. And yeah, that's yeah. when they want the money then anyway. And still so, a fantastic upside. That's the one thing that always pisses me off about landlords that want, well, it has to go up 10 cents per square foot per annum next next year. I'm like, no, it doesn't. You, it can. No, it doesn't. You could want it to, but it doesn't have to. Well, the, the thing is, one of the, it was a partnership with two guys, and, and they all had various different partnerships all around there. And these two, their deal was all a handshake, and, and they've been going for 30 years. You know, they, they've been friends for, like, now it's almost 45 years. They're like, look, we have a lot of deals. We don't have to make all our money off of you. We want to make... We, we want to make a little bit of money off of you. We want to sign one lease and be done with it. Because finding tenants is work. We didn't do real estate to have to work, you know? Yeah, what's an interesting argument that I've had with people in the past, and I don't know if there's a right answer, but there comes a point where, especially if you want to be renting to the hospitality industry, that if you're aggressively jacking up the rent, there comes a point where the business is not sustainable. And if you want to sign one lease with one guy and have him you know, take your building value for four hundred grand to $2.5 million, I don't think raising it every year is the way to do that. But again, I'm not a landlord, so take that for what it's worth. Yeah, but the, those landlords that are like that also usually have uh, vacancies all the time. And sales and, teams uh, trying to fill it at the same time. Yeah. Uh, yes, and that costs money. I want to dig into the details of sort of how Falling Rock ran as far as like, you know, what your product mix was, what your plan was, and how it kind of evolved throughout the years. But let's, let's take a quick break and we come right back. Let's get deep as we can into that story. about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. So, like I said, I want to hear how you ran the place. So, I've been in there, kind of got the concept when I was there, but admittedly, oh, I think I went 08 maybe the first time, and then I went back probably 16, 17, something like that. So, you know, ultimately, I, I wasn't there throughout the growth, obviously. So, I'm curious, when you first opened, let's, I guess let's we'll start there. How many square feet was it? Inside was uh, 5,500 square feet, but it was divided up in two floors. So, mm-hmm. you know, 2,700 feet on the top floor and 27 in the bottom. We saw about uh, six, seven buildings in one day. And, uh, I mean, the, the very first 
day, the real estate agent took us to like seven or eight places. We're just like, no, this is not anything like what we're looking for. We are not looking for the bottom level of a high rise building. Mm. We are not looking for space like that. You know, we're looking for a funky old building. This one didn't have to be that old. It was only built in 78 or whatever it was. You know, we were looking for a different kind of space. The second day he came back and showed us like five places that actually made sense. And the next morning I just sat down and on the back of a napkin drew up like, okay, this is where we put the cooler. This is where we put just a block diagram of, you know, what the bar looks like. And we kept coming back to there were two spaces and they were a block apart that made sense for what we were trying to do. And so we, we settled on that one because the lease rate was substantially less and it was a block closer to the ball field and had outdoor space, or the possibility of outdoor space. So we, we kind of went with that and we started with nothing. There was no grease trap there. <laughs> there was literally a half inch water line going in there. So we had to add in, we had to upgrade the water service. Uh, we had to put in the grease trap. We had to put everything into that building. It was just a a warehouse. It was a receiving dock for an electrical supply place next door, which is why it was shoved back from the street. We did everything. And my brother and I were there six days a week for, what, six and a half months doing the build out. Uh, We were, I describe it as everybody's bitch. We were, I mean, if the electricians needed an extra body, that was us. The carpenters, I... You usually went and fetched all the wood, you know, that wasn't getting delivered in the big deliveries. You know, my brother was doing other things with other contractors. Uh, I mean, we were very, very hands-on in the whole process. You know, we put it in. You know, we were shooting to be open in time for opening day, but we knew that was aggressive and probably wasn't going to happen. We opened up about six weeks after the third season had started for the Rockies. You know, it was really hard getting any press because... This was 1997. The Denver press had pretty much thought that they had done beer. Beer was already over with by that time. There was a big explosion of breweries, and then a bunch of stuff failed. And mainstream press around town was like, ah, beer's already done. We've already done. So it was hard getting some press. Heck, it was even hard to get the local brews paper to even answer a phone call so I could advertise it. We got, we got started the very first Great American Beer Festival, which was, you know, like five months after we opened up. We didn't have a whole lot of money. I just decided that we would put as many really interesting beers on as I could. So I made sure I had Foghorn. I made sure I had, you know, as interesting a beer as I could get my hands on, uh, which wasn't, you know, by today's series, standards all that interesting, but it was for that time. Well, this is actually and one of I've, the most important questions I like to ask people. And this is 97. I don't know if I've asked somebody this then. I personally don't really have a lot of positive feelings for where the craft beer, sexy beers are today. So what was it? Two questions first. First, do you remember how many taps you had when you opened? Oh, yeah. That's an easy one. We opened up with 69 taps. You already had 69? Okay. So I remember when I yeah. walked in, I'm like, just fuck taps everywhere. They couldn't have had this when they opened, but okay. Yeah, but, we had 69 to start with because I knew that we needed a, a fairly decent number to attract attention. Uh, 69 seemed to be a number that most people could remember. You know, young, old, male, female, gay, straight, doesn't matter. They usually can remember that number. So that was part of it. I printed up a thousand business cards and I went to the Great American Beer Festival, bought a regular ticket, and I just went down the booth, just down the line, and handed out business cards, you know, say we had 69 taps. To the brewers primarily or the people working for the breweries? 
Um, uh, or everyone. Both the yeah. ev- no, mostly the people that were behind the booths. So the volunteers and to the brewers. I would start talking to the volunteers, and the brewers were like, "Wait, wait, wait! What is that? Wait, wait!" And they would grab cards too. By the end of of the evening on on Friday night, uh, I was about but opens up at five thirty. At eight o'clock, I get a call from my brother. So I pull out this, you know, monster cell phone <laughs> and he's like, stop handing out the cards and get your ass back to the bar as soon as possible. We're shit back. It started to, uh, you know, we got a lot of attention, um, later on in November. So two months later, the Celebrator Beer News listed us as the top beer bar in the United States, <laughs> something that they never changed their opinion on until we closed or until actually, you know, celebrate basically closed down too. But we started to attract attention from the brewers. I figured if I built a place the brewers wanted to hang out with, the other people would start hanging out there too. So uh, that that worked pretty good. And we just sort of built and built. I added on a few taps. By the time we ended, we had about, oh, 95 taps and a couple of beer engines. Uh, but that was, you know, some beers. We had a root beer always on, had a couple ciders and a mead. As far as mix, you know, I tried to, what I liked played a, a role in it but it was also even though like say early on in 97 like you know a raspberry wheat was very popular beer well it's not my thing but i tried to find one that you know was actually really well made if you've been drinking all these different beers for 15 20 years and judging i was a, a i did homebrew judging for years and all that kind of stuff you know you kind of get a feel for ones that are made really well versus ones that are slap together and the people don't know what they're doing. And so you try to pick out the really good ones of styles that maybe you don't care for, but you know, people do because there's a lot of beers that, that help people get into the craft scene, like fat tire and everything like that. That was a huge thing uh, around the Denver area, around Colorado to get people into off of that Bud Light that they were drinking or that, that Coors banquet that they were. Drinking. And uh, so you looked for those kind of uh, beers and, you know, when, when I told our initial staff that we were going to have 69 beers on tap and that, you know, they would be recommending beers, I mean, you know, that look on your cat's face when you come into the room with the vacuum cleaner and the cat <laughs> just wants to get the fuck out of there and, you know, just terrified, and, um, yeah. just terrified. And I go, look, and it was something that I learned at the Ginger Man and if, if, if the people out there. I designed the Ginger Man's beer menu back in, oh, God, uh, like around 89 or something, 87, 88, 99, somewhere in there. I helped them uh, with the design. And we were t- I was talking one of the barbacks there. Robert was a math major and we were talking about stuff. And in math, you use matrices to break down large things. And so that's how we kind of designed the the menu so that bottom was bottles, top was draft. And then we just divided it up into three colors, light in between and dark, light, amber and dark to kind of break down that big selection into smaller bits that people could kind of wrap their head around. You know, it's one of the problems with so many choices these days. It's very difficult to make a decision. And that really slows down serving times. Mm-hmm. So the way to do that is to break things into into smaller bits and pieces. Yeah, do you want light amber or dark? Pick one. Here's your section. Then you go like, okay, now do you like it more hoppy or do you like it more malty? And I, kept, I, I said, here's how you break it down. Here's how you make those recommendations to my, my servers. It's like, you know, now you ask the second question towards the hoppier end, towards the, to, towards the maltier end or kind of in between. 
I go, now you've taken that 69 beers, and when they give you those the answers to two questions, you're probably down to maybe five beers, maybe six beers. Just go pick one of those, pour a little shot in a glass, hand it to them, and ask them what they think of that. And usually within two questions and two shots of beer, you can get somebody to a decision pretty quick. You know, that's the big game. I mean, one of the big things that we changed over the years to get better at serving beers fast was when, you know, we had a pretty standard list that didn't change as much. I mean, with 95 beers, maybe 60 of our beers would be fairly static. They'd be on there for a long time, maybe year round, maybe multiple years, as long as they were still selling. Then there would be some seasonal rotators. And then there was 20 taps that we rotated keg to keg. And uh, we started, we switched, uh, instead of just having the names up there, we just did numbered taps on the wall because I started, I mean, I didn't have enough space to, to store all the taps that would come into the place. Number one, it's very mm. expensive for the breweries just to give us a tap for one keg of beer. And I just started going, this is just ridiculous. So I started, I just had numbered taps up there. We had a whole system. Uh, it was a magnetic strips that we would slap those up. We'd pre-print them. They'd be ready to go. And we would print out a nice little list of all the numbers, and people could go through there. And, you know, number one was always at this end of the bar, and at one end of the bar, and number 20 was closer to the other, and they always kind of stayed in the same place. So it was faster for our people, our bartenders, to get to those taps. And it's like the bartender doesn't care what beer you want. They just want to be able to get to it, get it, get it to you, especially during – peak times like baseball games and especially great american beer festival when we we're just absolute you know just moving to that system sped up our our times immensely people were like god it just doesn't seem as busy i go actually we were running just as good a numbers or better than we were two or three years ago it's just that we're getting you beers faster you're not spending 20 <laughs> minutes in line you're spending maybe four or five minutes in line because we can get the beers to you faster you know that's that's just kind of was our philosophy of doing stuff that's why we use registers although that was also a problem, <laughs> you know, towards the end. It just takes, on the back end, it just takes so much time to do that. But, yeah, you know, I was more interested in getting the person a beer and getting the money in the register than knowing whether I served, you know, 87 or 88 of whatever beer that was that day. Well, that was going to be a question I asked you, too. Um, one, just on the management piece of it, but, you know, nowadays, obviously, this, this same bar is going to have, you know, some software tracking pours and efficiency per keg and what's left and all that. Clearly, in 97, you didn't do that. Did you incorporate a software program later? Uh, no. Although we, I was very much, as the POS systems became much more software-based instead of hardware-based, mm -hmm. in 97, everything was proprietary hardware. Something broke down. They had, you know, they had to get you back. You couldn't just go down to the local computer store and, and grab a new printer or grab a new uh, monitor or any of that kind of stuff. You know, having 300 SKUs was something they were not set up to hand. There was one company that had an early software-based one, and he came up with a method of doing it that was, it was okay. But I mean, I've seen places where, you know, the server has, the bartender or the server has to go through seven or eight screens to get to the beers. And I'm just like, oh my God, it's just so painful. And it's like, what beer do you want? That's $7. Give me the money and <laughs> stick it in the register and get on to the next guy. Yeah. Later on, I was very much starting to think of it because, you know, we were starting to do some pretty serious business. You get into 13, 14, 15, which was our peak years. And up until 17, when disaster hit us, 
which was they did construction in front of us for 54 weeks. It was promised to be a three-month project, and it turned out to be a year and two weeks. And it was just, it was devastating. We lost 30% of our business just overnight. It just was turning the tap off. Yeah, and in a business like y'all's, obviously it's a cool and unique place, but once I'm forced for a year to go somewhere closer to my house, maybe I don't want to drive it any further anymore. It just it sucks in hospitality oh, to have that happen. It's it's one, one of the big things that I've always said is, is it's about training the customer about what they're supposed to do, what they expect. And part of that is is developing habits. Once you break a habit, it's hard to get back. Once you develop a new habit to go going someplace else, you stop. You stop worrying about that other place that you've been going to for five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, we weren't the only game in town anymore. And, and you know, that that's fine. I'm fine with people who are competing with me on the same footing because, number one, they're not going to have my experience. They're not going to have my connections to the industry either. I mean, you know, some of these people I've known for, well, in, in like two weeks, it'll be 40 years of me working in in this industry professionally. I also this Sunday was my 60th birthday. Teenage was different at that time. Yes. Yeah. It's very important developing those those habits and keeping people come in and it just yeah it just destroyed us on that because there was just no parking and you didn't know from day to day how it was going to be open or anything. They would tell us one day and as soon as they hung up the phone, it was a lie. It, it was bad. And I spent time trying to get the city council people, the utility companies, the parking people, and like, hey, can we all sit down? Because I think there's some things that we can do to minimize this. I mean, this project had to get done. They were replacing a ga- gas main that had been leaking for probably 20 or 25 years. And, I mean, that had to get done. Mm-hmm. But there were ways. I'm like, look, if we can just – why don't we just shut down the street – in January, when it's dead anyway, let's just shut it down from end to end and just dig up the whole street and let's do all this. Just rip the Band-Aid off and why don't, you know do that, spend three weeks and we'll just go, everybody goes on vacation or I'll tell my customers, like, here's how you, here's how you can help us. And it's a short term thing. And, and, you know, that's something you can tell people to do. But when you're telling people every single week, oh, here's the new thing you have to deal with the to come here. Yeah. So, uh, it was, so tell us the logistics of what that meant. So, and I dealt with something similar actually a month and a half before I finally got rid of my brewery. Were people not able to like walk in the front door? Was there some way around or did it like smell? No. Did you have to whatever? No, they just had to, they just had to find parking. And, and the way most people came into our place, cause we were on a one way street, they would come in from 20th and usually from 20th heading in the, we call it South, but it's actually Southwest because all the streets are diagonal here, but it was in downtown. They wouldn't find parking for three or four or five blocks. Mm. And what we kept trying to tell people is like, don't come in from 20th, come in from Park Avenue, another two blocks north, because in front of the baseball stadium, when it wasn't a baseball game, it was always parking. Oh, that's only a few blocks away or whatever, like one block away. Right. right? And then, yeah, and then you're one block away. But people would come in there. and, And the problem is, especially with lunch, we lost half of our lunch business. Because, you know, when you're on lunch, you have a limited amount of time. And if you sit there and spend 15 minutes looking for parking now, all of a sudden you need to find a place to eat fast so you can make it back to your office relatively on time. And so that really started killing us. It it was rough. It, It was just it was devastating. And we never we never made any of that business back up. 
people develop um, new habits. Do you recall how like how off the revenues were? Was it thirty percent oh, hit, fifty percent yeah, hit? Yeah, thirty percent of our overall business, fifty percent of our lunch business. We had just gone to having two servers on the floor during the middle of the week, like like the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays with no baseball game. So all of a sudden, it, we're back to one server on the floor. Uh, so a couple of people lost a few shifts. I mean, we didn't lay any people off, but people had less shifts. We had three employees that basically worked for us the entire time we were open. Our FNG, the last year we were open, had been there almost three years. Most of the rest of the people had been with us more than a dozen years. People just didn't leave. They made good money. Mm-hmm. We had four basic rules. Show up basically on time. Don't be drunk or stoned on duty. Don't steal. And don't make me make rule number five. Because all these people had worked in the service industry before. And it's like, you know what you're supposed to do. You know what you're not supposed to do. So be an adult and let's move on. And by and large, that worked pretty good. You know, we had a couple of employees that decided to overindulge. And uh, so we had to make rule number five for a while. And nobody could drink what was rule number five? on duty. <laughs> yeah, you can't have anything, have anything to drink while you're on duty. When the entire staff votes in favor of that, you know something's a problem. Yeah. You know? I, I literally had a little bit of a visceral reaction when you said it because if I had worked there, I know for a fact that would have been rule number five would have been my fault. <laughs> it's like, <fuck>. <laughs> whatever it was, like, I would have put, I would have come up with whatever you hadn't thought of and done that. It wasn't one person's fault; it was two people's fault, and it was like you know that was a really bad problem that we had. But I was also noticing in other other people because I talk with a lot of bar owners around that uh, beer bar owners around the country. That we had there was one group. It was called it's called the Publican National Committee and uh, the PNC. It was um, the tornado out in San Francisco. And then it was also the one in uh, San Diego and the one in Seattle. Apex Bar in Portland, the Horse Grass Pub in Portland. It was Monk's Cafe out in Philadelphia. And we were all it was just a bunch of people that we, we all had similar opinions. Mm-hmm. We all had been around for a while and we loved hanging out. together. So we started we had this very informal group, you know, talking with them and they were all going through the same thing at the same time with the other people I was talking with, a couple of people in Chicago, people from the map room and Michael Roper up at Hopleaf in Chicago too. And everybody had very similar stories. All of our top years were like 2014, 2015. And everybody started feeling the pinch after that. I mean, we'd gone down by, oh, a couple of percent in 15, a couple more percent, I think we were around 5 or 6% in 2016, then down 30%. But that was a lot of what was happening in the restaurant scene also. A lot of people like to call it the uh, food network effect. Basically, and it, and it carried over into the beer also, is like anybody can open a damn brewery <laughs> and anybody can open a damn restaurant. And that, that really happened. I mean, you look at Chicago, I mean, the number of, Licensed places to drink, oh God, more than doubled. It, it went from uh, right at a little over 5,000 licenses to just under 11,000 licenses. And Chicago had shrunk by 2% in population. So, you know, just the, the pie gets sliced up slimmer and slimmer. And in Denver, I mean, we were one of the lucky ones because we were the fastest grow, growing major metropolitan area in the U.S. We had the same doubling of licenses and we, but we grew by 30% in population. So, yeah. I mean, at least we were doing relatively better. 
but still, the the the, the pie was getting sliced up. Almost any industry goes through that stuff. Unfortunately, people see something going on, and they think that they see people making money, and they want to get in on it. And so many people jump into industry. It is that all of a sudden nobody's making any money. When the overall and, quality uh, industry goes down because you have new entrants instead of the kind of experienced guys who've been doing it correctly and finding new ways to be more efficient throughout the years, a bunch of newbies coming yeah. and slapping things around. In, in the past, I mean, newer people, you come in, you go to work for a breed, you learn about this kind of stuff, and you actually learn about what you're doing. Or maybe you run, you help, you bark into the place and you move up and maybe become a manager and then you decide to go out and do stuff. I mean, it's just a lot of people just jumping in with both feet, with zero experience, zero understanding, and you know, not understanding um, the three tier system, and and not understanding that there are some serious benefits to this. I mean, people are like, well, well, why can't I do all this? It's like, well, because if you can do it, Budweiser can do that, and we don't have to do a some crazy thought experiment about you know what the landscape looks like when you don't have the three tier system because it's it's what the Western world looks like. The biggest couple of breweries own all the restaurants have contracts with all the restaurants all the bars all the venues i mean well they got that all the venues here now but the liquor stores everything and if you're a small little guy like you have no access to the marketplace you can only sell inside your own four walls and a couple of places there are free houses or a couple of liquor stores but you have no access to the marketplace they don't understand that i mean you know i spent time you know lobbying in texas you know, when brew pubs were first legalized in the mid '90s, there, I mean, nothing could go off-site, zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was technically illegal for you to send your beer away for analysis, and it came to a head the very first year. A couple of breweries entered the Great American Beer Festival and won some medals, and literally, it was illegal for them to send beer to the Great American Beer Festival. Mm-hmm. And TABC found out about that because they won a medal, and so they had to, you know, quick make it so that you could do that. I mean, which is also why none of the pubs survived. This is definitely a piece of that whole story we're going to talk about in the fourth segment, and I really want to get into that. But what I want to hear next is a little bit about, you know, the last days, the party, obviously, that I didn't get to attend, which I'm so pissed off about. But let's take a quick break, and we'll get into that whole story of kind of how you walked away from it, and which I don't think you have completely yet, but we'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. This is uh, the point at which I want to hear what happened. So obviously 15, 16, 17 happened. What's going through your head at this point? You're like, I love this industry. I've helped create this industry. You know, I still want to be in my business every day, but you know, numbers are so far down. I'm looking at a future that's uncertain. You know, how are you dealing with that? Well, I mean, one of the one of the ways that I dealt with it was by, you know, I was having a lot of discussions with a lot of brewery people and I was getting 
really pissed off and really tired of every single year a bunch of newer breweries mostly newer people always wanting to change something and basically take something out of my piece meaning you know, through the laws yes they always were wanting to change the laws and, like that. and and i had lobbied to change a bunch of the laws to allow for self-distribution the mentality behind that for me was was about access to the marketplace, of having a shot at being able to sell your stuff. Because there was consolidation going on in the distribution tier, if no distributor picked you up and you didn't have the right to self-distribute, then you had no access to the marketplace. You were shut out. Mm -hmm. So that had to be that counterbalance to do it. And and the, the lobbying I was doing with the distributors group was that, hey, you know, if there's a new small brewery, you don't want that small brewery. Like, you literally don't want that small brewery. Because distributors will talk to you all the time about selling beer. Distributors don't sell beer. And when they do, you just shout hallelujah and you're never going to have a rough voice because it's not going to happen that often. Okay? They're a delivery service. And if they can do that right, well, that's another time to shout and be really excited. This comes from somebody who worked with and in distributors for years. It's just a hard argument yeah. for the brewery, though, because like you just know when you give up 30%, you just want to feel you can at least kind of hand it off and let them handle it. And, and I get it why you can't, but it's, it's, it's hard right. to get through the minds of new brewers. Look, if you, can, if you can get them to deliver your product, consider yourself winning, okay? I, I said, look, you don't want that startup brewery. You want that brewery when they've been going for a while, when they have a whole bunch of handles, when they already have the placements in all the right liquor stores, and they have volume going through so that you can then deliver their product. And a cute little girl will keep those placements going because she's in there every day talking right. to people. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing that you want. And I always talk to the breweries about it. And I said, and I told the distributors this too, I said, for the most part, self-distribution is kind of self-limiting at the same time. Because somewhere around the time that you get a third truck, you start realizing just how much that costs you. You know, the salary, the benefits, the third truck. And now, oh, wait a second. Now your insurance company goes, wait a second. You have three vehicles making deliveries. Now you're a delivery company. Now your insurance rates go up a little bit. I mean, there's all these costs that start going up. And you start looking at it and go, maybe 30% isn't such a bad deal. And that's where it starts to kind of make some sense is somewhere around the third truck. I think it's a, uh, there's a weird mix in there too. So I believe that you lose money on the first truck all, every time. Everybody with one uh -huh. truck loses money. And somewhere between the, the first and the third, there's a there's a minor amount of profit in there. And then once you get to the third, you got to get rid of it. Yeah. Or go and, all and this in, is, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the breweries that have gone full hog into the distribution game and thinking, you know, Brooklyn, I mean, they had to start their own distribution company because there was no alternative. There's no other way of getting to the marketplace. Uh, Stone did it. Same thing in the San Diego area. There just was three gigantic distributors of beer and nobody wanted to pick up all these things. So they took them on. Brooklyn, Steve Hendy is very famous. He's in his book about at some point he was like he was trying to feed two beasts and he couldn't do that. He could feed either, either or. He could grow his brewery or he could grow his distributor, but he couldn't, you know, financially, even with nice access to capital, it's like he couldn't feed both beasts. So he sold off the one to fund the other one better. But I felt like I could do that because there were had also gotten to a certain volume where people paid attention to it. It was worthwhile for them to do. And so I, I was kind of getting down into that kind of mindset. I was getting really frustrated with some of that stuff. So I put out 
you know, my little paper, which we're going to talk about later on in a thing called The Death of the Cool. We're teasing the and shit just, out of this thing. You better stick around oh for section God. four, folks. I know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I kind of got that out. And my website person who designed the website, did all the stuff, hosted it, everything like that, after it had been out for 48 hours or something like that, calls me up and he goes, holy crap, Chris, you have 10,000 hits on that article. And the dwell time on that page is over six minutes because this thing is like six pages long. Yeah, it's taking a while to read it. People are actually reading that sucker. And I know I pissed a lot of it. (laughs) I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I've heard that. And that's fine. But there were an awful lot of people that were like, yeah, I get it. I understand it. That was one way I was dealing with things. I was trying to cut expenses on the place as much as I could. But, you know, taxes were going up and, you know, did then you, COVID hit. Did you find you any know? unique and interesting ways to cut your expenses? Just this is first and foremost, I guess, an advice podcast. So if, if anybody could learn yeah. from what you learned. No, I mean, I just I, I mean, I just really pulled back on a lot of my advertising that I just didn't feel I wasn't really getting me something back. Advertising is really tough to judge on that kind of stuff. But it was more like hearing that people had stuff they had heard. I mean, the, the local weekly paper in every town's got one of those things. And it, it had just become irrelevant. Nobody was picking the thing up anymore. You know, when I would see the stacks of them sitting there, nobody was going to them every day to see what the stuff. They were going online a little bit. But even then, I just didn't see any kind of return on that. So I was doing very limited, mostly around the best of times. Really Did you rethink of- your draft lineup? Were there certain products maybe that you started going, hey, we're not going to carry that one. We just don't make enough money on it. Formats like 750s, for example. Oh, we starting in 15, I mean, starting about 13, bottle sales really started to go down. And I cut out all buying all the bottles except for the Belgians. Uh, and some of the really funky, weird things that almost were exclusively only in the bottles, mm-hmm. or it was harder to get the drafts. I mean, at one time, we had probably 500 SKUs between our bottle selection and in our bottle selection between the vintage seller and the everyday stuff. And we, in 15, we really reined that back and got rid of that as much as possible. And I, I basically stopped buying vintage beer to save in 15 complete, 100% stop, because my sales on that catalog had just, oh God, down by 70% or so. Were you still buying kegs to seller or and then just uh, not bottles? Some, yes, yes. Okay. I was still able to sell those and, you know, you know, I had a lot of kegs. But uh, that was, you know, that was one of the big things to cut that part out of my budget because it just wasn't bringing any return. At and all. even the margin wasn't great when you did sell it, I'm sure. So, you know, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to mark it up 300 percent or 350 or whatever that number is for you. you. You just couldn't do that with a bottle. Once you got over a certain, I mean, yeah, you could do it at the bottom end. But by the time you got to $20, if you say you had a 300 percent markup on it, you know, nobody's going to buy a $60 bottle of beer. Yeah, I've seen it done. I actually saw a can of Death by Coconut on a menu for $45. (laughs) I had a few bottles like that. But, you know, you just didn't move very many of them. And, you know, I stayed away from as many of those. Although I could sell as much canteen as I could get my hands on, which was not hardly any. You know, that was one of the big things that I cut down on. You know, I just tried to be more efficient with what I had. Uh, We did a lot of work in our kitchen. We utilized uh, some resources from our food supplier. They came in and, uh, you know, this guy 
spent two hours in the kitchen and came back and goes, you need to get rid of this and this thing off the menu. And then there were a couple of little changes. I mean, it was really amazing how slight the changes were and how big of a dis- difference it made in how the kitchen ran. It was, it was just unbelievable. Yeah, I always said and that's was, why I didn't ever have a kitchen because I, I know those things are there and I have absolutely no idea what they are. So I just never opened You know, we were required to have a kitchen and I had always been a fan of having food around alcoholic beverages. I've always been into that kind of mindset. I think it keeps people seats a little bit more, but it's also a way more responsible way of, of serving alcohol. We did that. It was not our forte. It was nothing that my brother or I had really been that involved in, but we brought in a friend who had run some kitchens and that helped. We just tried to do those things that we could and cut out, you know, anything that we could. And then, you know, like I said, then of course COVID hit, you know, and that really made us start taking a hard look. And I fought very hard with myself, with the whole concept of trying to figure out how do we build up from this? Because, you know, we had to let go what little staff we had at that point. I mean, it was a low point anyway, mm-hmm. because um, March is when we would start gearing back up for baseball season. So that was rough. We lost our kitchen staff. They were very fortunate. It was almost like one family. And they were very fortunate. They found a commercial kitchen. They got hired immediately. And they didn't want to come back, mostly because they're like, Chris, we're making just as much money, maybe a little bit more. It's Monday through Friday. It's nine to five. I punch in at nine. I punch out at five and I go home. (laughs) And for the first time in their careers of working in kitchens, no nights and no weekends. And they were just like, hallelujah. We're not drunk. We get off work. It's weird. I don't know. (laughs) Before COVID happened, had your numbers come back from the debacle with the city fucking up the streets? No, no. We were holding our own. We we'd held pretty steady, but we were already thinking like, geez, you know, long term, this is just like this just isn't worth it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we weren't paying ourselves, of course. I mean, you know, it, it just it was, but you know, we had employees that worked for us forever, and we didn't want to just pull the plug on it. Uh, I mean, luckily, my landlords were not, you know, well, you still owe three more years on your lease, and we're going to sue your ass for it. You know, it, it was just, it, you know, we were already trying to figure out what we were trying to do Mm -hmm. during COVID. You know, I was running the front door. My youngest brother, Al was working the bar and my middle brother was, Steve was in the kitchen and he was starting to have some pretty serious health concerns back there because he was just, you know, he was stressed out just like I was. We were all pretty stressed out. And, uh, you know, it finally just got down to, in 2021, they moved the All-Star game from Atlanta to Denver because of, you know, some of the uh, things that were going on politically in Georgia. You know, the baseball decided that wasn't a good scene. So they pulled it, moved it to Denver, and we were looking at, we didn't have enough staff for it. We didn't have a kitchen that could handle the volume of business we were going to do. And so we just sat down and, and my brother's, my middle brother's just like, I cannot do this anymore. And hmm. I'm like, I fought it for like 10 seconds. And uh, that was it at that point that he'd already gotten uh, to the and, point. And well, I mean, I thought he, he came back with just a couple of couple of things. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. I need to start you know, at least accepting that part of it that I think you have unbelievably valid point here. And, and we need to start thinking like, well, what do we need to do with our 
our landlords? How do we need to do that kind of stuff? I'm like, well, let me go talk to them. So I sent them a message. They got back with me and like, okay, let's meet tomorrow morning. And we had a very, it was a, it was a tough meeting just saying that those words, but they were, they were phenomenal. And it just sort of came down to, it's like, Chris, if you want to be here, we're your landlords. If you don't want to be here, we're just going to sell the bill. Mm. You know, it's that simple. I mean, they're both like around 70 and they're like, you know, we're just going to sell the building. It's time. It's all good. They considered this last five-year lease that we had been on to almost be a month to month. They're like, if you'd come to us at any time of this thing, pay up through the end of the month you want to be there and let's be done with it. We're just going to put it up for sale. Yeah, they had so, done well. No hard feelings at that point, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because we were just starting to have discussions about phasing rent back in. Because during COVID, they were just like, look, if you can pay the triple net so money doesn't come out of our pockets, then we're fine with not making money. Mm-hmm. And during so, that time, taxes went up, probably, didn't they? <laughs> the week before we made the decision to pull the plug on it, we got the tax bill for the next year, and we knew it was going to go up, and, and we knew it was going to go up significantly. It went up $11,000 a year. That's insane. $1,000 a month, just short of $1,000 a month in taxes. And we were just like, well, that pushed the needle a little further over into that red line, like, uh-uh. We decided that that's what we were doing. And so the first thing that we did was, I mean, I told my my wife, then we made arrangements to talk with all the staff and we made no announcements until after we had informed the last staff member because we had a few people out on the floor and everything like that. And then we made the public announcement uh, and that was on a Saturday at noon and you know, we had that day and Sunday, we were closed. There wasn't a baseball game. So that was Monday, Tuesday, you know, that, that whole next week was no baseball. We, we decided we would open back up on Wednesday and run through Sunday and, uh, that would be it. So you gave so, everybody I mean, about a week until the closing party? Yeah. We, we, clo- we, uh, so we opened back up on Wednesday. The only negative thing was all of our, st- since there wasn't like a baseball game, all, of, and we weren't open on Wednesdays at that time. All of our staff, you know, had other jobs, so none of our <laughs> staff could work the Wednesday shift. So it was literally my three brothers. It was my two brothers and I working that day. Unbeknownst to me, there was a discussion going around amongst a bunch of brewers, very good friends of mine. Some of these names you might recognize, like Benny Chilurzo and Tommy Arthur, Garrett Marrero from Maui, and then you've got... Uh, John Harris from Ecliptic, and you've got, I mean, it was just all these people all around the country. They all started this thread, you know, on their phones, and they all decided to fly in on Wednesday. They did not tell me. <laughs> so one of my suppliers, one of my really good distributors, he calls me up. It's about, oh, maybe 10 minutes before we're going to open on Wednesday. He says, hey, Chris, hey, come out here. There's, there's a problem out here. And I'm like, problem jesus christ i've had so much shit going on like i don't need problem and i walk out and the line is going all the way down to the sidewalk and turned and went down to the corner you know and then turned the corner it looked like a plenty of the younger release day (laughs) but about just after i turned on the street so i couldn't see him from going out the front door i had to wait until i got right to the sidewalk before i saw him was all this huge group of my best friends in the industry were all sitting there. And of course I was bawling. And, uh, so it was, it was very emotional and, uh, I got a lot of love, but the worst part about it was everybody was there and we were just balls to the wall. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, I saw the pictures and like one of my friends that got to go and disappointed. I can't remember what I was doing then, but I was like, you know, I was like, oh, fuck, I would love to go t- was, send you guys off, but it was insanity. And I was, I had to be back behind the bar. The three of us were behind the bar, just pouring beer as fast as we could. We had closed the kitchen, like we're not going to be open with the kitchen. You know, if the state wanted to come after us, fuck you. We don't <laughs> care. You know, it's just like. You know what? You're going to pull my license? Yeah, at that point, go for it. Yeah. Ah, Go for it. But anyway, you know, we're going balls to ball. Well, we got everybody a beer and there was a tiny break. And I ran out from behind the bar, gave this huge group of people a hug. We took a picture together. And I mean, I've probably been out behind the bar for about three and a half minutes. And my brother's on the, get your ass back here. Hmm. You know, and, and so we got there and that was, that was the first. We were just busy the whole time. It it just kept getting, you know, Thursday getting bigger and, Friday and Saturday, and we closed at five o'clock on Sunday. You were like, God, why are you closing at five o'clock? And I'm like, number one, I hope to be out of beer, <laughs> or at least, you know, all the beer that we we're going to tap into. And then I know it's going to take four or five hours to get rid of you people after we stop serving you beer. For sure. Yeah. And it did. It was 1030 before I was able to get out of it. But that last day, I mean, I think we only had about, oh, maybe 25 or 30 beers on. By Sunday, you know, the only beer that I bought extra of that week, the only purchase I made, I bought the last of my allocation of Russian River stuff. So I still had like another keg of blind pig in, in the hopper. And I bought the last three or four kegs of Pliny I had. <laughs> well, that made it till Saturday at noon, maybe just after we opened, we killed the last Pliny. And we got down to where we had, we actually had one beer on after 4.30. All we had on was Comrade Superpower because I had bought like on Friday, I bought four kegs of Comrade Superpower because David could, could make a delivery then. And that was the very last keg. And we, we literally poured the last one just after 5 o'clock. I went over to get a beer, and the keg killed on me. Like, all the bartenders poured a, a round of beers for themselves, and I poured one for me, and I got about three-quarters of a glass. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I got. And it was like – and people were cheering, and it was all crazy. And it was just – Unbelievably emotional, and uh, well, obviously the there was call. sadness, but you had to also feel some pride just to have been, you know, obviously that important to the industry overall, and, and that people were able to take the time to come out and, and show you off, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, that was good. You know, the hardest call was calling my dad, yeah, and, uh, but he got it, and uh, that was good. And then you know, last Sunday was my birthday, so I threw it out on Facebook. Some of my best friends in the industry here in town are the Peterson brothers from uh, the Bull and Bush. It's been a family place there. They opened up Bull and Bush in 1971. It was their dad and their uncle. They opened up this place. They added in a brewery in 1997. The kids took it over, Dave and Eric, and they've been running it now for 25 years. And they've just become like such close family. I mean, I still have the key to their cabin. <laughs> outside Rocky Mountain Park. Of course, it burned down two years ago, but still have the key. But uh, And uh, so they, for COVID, they put up this tent in there. It's like 30 by 50 tents, 50 inch square. So they gave me the tent for this Sunday to do my birthday party. And they're like, sure, let's do that. We'll throw a couple of fresh beers on, like go have some fun. It was a mob scene. No bad. Uh, I, I just put it out on my personal page. I didn't put it out on Falling Rock's page because I knew better than that. And it was just crazy. And a lot of these people I haven't seen in a year and a half. So I might have. I've run into a bunch of them all around town. I keep in touch with a bunch of them. That, that was, uh, that felt really good. It was interesting. I invited my, just got some neighbors next door. Actually have some good neighbors for the first time in, in like 20 years. 
And I invited them. And they're like, oh, super. And they came out and they're like, holy crap, Chris. That's all. Everybody's like, hey, who are you? And like, oh, I'm his neighbor. And I'm like, oh, man, did you ever go to Falling Rock? And they're like, no. And they were just like, holy crap, there's a lot of people that love you there. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I did. I don't know. So, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, you were definitely one of those person or are one of those personalities in the industry. So, what was uh, what was sort of the aftermath like? Like, obviously, you had a great final week. Were you guys able to skate out without too much debt and like liabilities? Yeah, yeah, we were very lucky in that thing. I mean, we had some liabilities, but we were able to. We had some. We cashed in some stuff that we had set up for ourselves, so we were able to pay off everything. I spent the next six months getting out of my warehouse space because I had like twenty four hundred square feet of warehouse with. Just all kind, all the gear that associated with it, and I spent six months getting rid of all that stuff and selling that up. I got down to one, well, one and a half storage containers now, and I'm trying to get down to one. I I may, but got out of it without owing a lot of money. But at the same time, I don't don't have any savings left. I, I don't know if you know anything about that kind of situation. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I sold my brewery for. Uh, one eighth or something like that of what I spent on it. I don't know. So yeah, I yeah, that's yeah. all the assets. I should clarify. We were able to to get out of it without being in hot. You know, that that was another thing. You know, I, I have a few friends that had to close their their places, and they're still paying for it a decade decade later. Yeah, you know, Stop. one way or the other. I had a really good friend who had to declare bankruptcy in Texas there, and. I spent some serious time talking with him and before all of that and just uh, he had to declare bankruptcy and it's been just hell having to get back to zero. So I feel very fortunate in that, that we were able to get out of it without ordering, without owing just crap tons of money. And, and it was really also good. You know, I didn't know any of my distributors anything or anything like that. That was you know also part of my sales pitch to them. Like, you know, when there was one of a certain kind of keg or something like that. And they're like, well, you know, Chris, we can't give everything to you all the time. And I'm like, I understand that thought process, but here's the thing. Do you want to get paid today for it? Or do you want to get paid in 30 days? Which, of course, you know, means at least 45 days, right? And they're like, sold. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll give you cash. How about that? I'm going to write you a check right this second. Book, and the check's going to clear. So uh, which do you want to do? You know, that that's kind of how that rolled. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. And, I wouldn't uh, rush growing up. It's not a great experience when I understand. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard it's a trap. Hey, I've gotten this far without it. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of how, you know, what you're doing next, what's going on. And then obviously we need to address this 2017 yeah. state of the union right. that you dropped out. So let's take a quick <laughs> break. We'll be right back. Let's do exactly that. If you were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, welcome back. This is the fourth and final segment, I think. Maybe we'll keep going. I don't know. Hopefully. Obviously, at this point, 
you don't know what you're going to be when you grow up. Like, what is your plan or, or, or are your plans for the future? What, what's next? Well, you know, people ask me, you know, like, am I going to be retired? And I'm like, well, that would take money. And I don't have any of that anymore. So, uh, and my retirement plan was to have a bar that I could have income coming in, you know, for until, you know, whatever I sold it or whatever. I've been doing a small amount of consulting, uh, not nearly enough, mostly soundboarding uh, for some people that want to have somebody from outside their own organization to bounce ideas off of and either tell them they're crazy or tell them they're on maybe on the right track, doing a little bit of that. And then I've been doing a lot of like just kind of odd job handyman. It's nice because that was one of the things that I liked about having Falling Rock was, you know, the days weren't the same every single day. Mm -hmm. You know, you were always putting out different fires. You know, I was in charge of maintenance on the building. So, you know, one day I might be painting this or I'm plunging a toilet the next minute or fixing the draft system or, you know, just I, I was always doing different things. And I had all the tools because unless you did it yourself, I mean, you could go broke playing for plumbers and and all that kind of stuff going on. So I've started doing that. It's really hard right now to find anybody in Colorado to do a lot of that kind of work because in the last two little over two years, we've lost over just short of 2000 homes in Colorado to fires. So all the contractors, all the home builders, you know, there's a lot of people moving here. So the main home builders, you know, the, the track house people, they're busier than shit. All the regular contractors that go and do remodels or build custom homes, they're all as busy as they could possibly be. So, and, and they're scrambling for personnel too. And, you know, carpenters and electricians. Are, I mean, they're just as busy as they can be. So all those little tiny jobs around your house, people can't find stuff to do. So I, that's, I just started like, why don't I just do some of this? And I've been keeping, you know, not quite busy enough this winter, but, you know, it's it's been getting better, especially the last couple of weeks. So I, I just been having fun with that. And, and I get to see a lot of it's, you know, former customers. So I get to hang out with them for a couple of minutes. It's <laughs> yeah. really good fun. And and, you know, go in there and I, I painted a couple houses. I remodeled a condo. I've, you know, I've got stuff like that lined up for a little bit. I'd like some more. So if you're in the Denver area, give me a shout out. Find me on Facebook or whatever and send me a DM and. You know, I'm just doing a lot of small projects and enjoying that and been trying to figure out what I'm going to do. That's stay, where we are right now. I'll stay posted if you do something in the industry. I want to know about it. So, uh, you know, I've got some people talking to me about that, something down the road a little bit. Who knows? I don't want to, you know, uh, if I had an equity stake, that would be fine. I told people, I'm like, man, I, I did what I wanted to do. Falling rock. I had what I, I did, what I wanted to say. Hell, if I won the lottery, I probably wouldn't go back and restart that. I don't know. I don't know. I might. Who knows? I'd hire some managers, too, at the same time, so I didn't have to do <laughs> so much of everything. What do you miss most about it at this point? Definitely seeing the people. I mean, I used to get, you know, I'd see, you know, on a slow week, see a few hundred people. And there always used to be this place where all my friends met up every every time they came into town or came downtown, even for that much. So, I mean, I opened up this place. I moved to town and I opened up the bar and that's how I met people. GABF was rough because I was so used to seeing, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people every year, whether they be brewers or attendees, you know, coming in every year. That is something that I really miss. The 75, 80 hours a week I don't miss. Stress I don't miss. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's mostly seeing people. Tell me what's up here. So you wrote what you called your mea culpa in 2017. You put it on your website. 
2018 maybe? No, 2018. Yeah. Why did you do this? What? Why did this have to be set? Let's start there. Well, I, I you know, pe- people love those little glib answers to problems. You know, those little soundbite answers. And it just got really frustrating having to explain, you know, I go like things are so complex and there's there's all these there's these three moving parts that are kind of revolving around each other, you know, in the three tier system. And, you know, I get why some of the newbies don't understand it because it's not a normal free market, which free markets don't actually exist <laughs> because if, if they're totally open and free. They lead to monopolies, and then there's no longer a marketplace. We've tried that before, starting in the 1870s, and that didn't work. You know that that led to the robber baron age, and then 30 years of trying to roll that back, and and then you know we decided we want to go down that path that we already went down, you know, 100 years before. When you try to explain a very complex argument, you lose people. So I decided that I needed to put it out in a written form, and maybe. That would cause some debate and maybe people would understand that, oh, wait, it's more complicated than that. My least favorite thing that I hear from people is like when breweries talk about wanting to level the playing field. And I'm like, the playing field was never supposed to be level. It was never even supposed to touch. Breweries were never supposed to sell retail. They were not supposed to distribute. And But we decided back, you know, starting in the 80s and the early 90s that that was not a very conducive space for small brewers. So we, we changed some of the rules to allow them to do some of that stuff. And it was always sold as it's going to be kind of limited. Like I talked about earlier with, uh, you know, once you get to about the third truck, kind of becomes a little self-limiting. Uh, you start to realize how much it costs you to do that uh, self-distribution. And it also, most of the breweries in their tasting rooms, I mean, I've always been a fan of tasting rooms for a brewery. I think every brewery should have a tasting room. That's not what the problem that I see is. It's when the breweries start opening up satellite tasting rooms that the only purpose behind that room is retail sales. And I've argued with breweries that it really doesn't help your brand. Because there's there's basically three kinds of breweries out there. There's the brew pub model. There's the production where you're trying to sell as much beer as you can. And then there's the, the smaller brewery, the, the, low, the small like neighborhood brewery, where they're really not trying to sell outside of their own tap room. Sales outside the tap room are mostly you know, pretty limited, you know, selling some, some cans or whatever, growlers to go, uh, maybe a couple of kegs going outside your tap room. Uh, for marketing purposes, or just as a personal release valve, you've got a couple extra kegs. My argument is not with them. It's with the production brewery that wants to sell their beer in the grocery stores and the restaurants and the bars and the liquor stores and everything like that. Is like when you start opening up those satellite locations, now you're competing with your customer. And in the past, breweries always, you know, it was usually the most expensive place to buy that six pack was at the brewery because if you sell it for less than what the liquor store down the street can sell it for then why is he going to carry your product the same thing goes on with the restaurants and the bars if you open up in a neighborhood you're not going to have any tap handles in that neighborhood because why am i going to give you the money to compete against it's bad for your brand in the long run Uh, we had a brewery here in colorado that uh, decided to open up a tap room down the street from me and so i very uh, vocally told Dale to go fuck himself. And I argued, I had argued with him years before about not doing that because he had hundreds of tap handles 
people surrounding me. They decided to open up the place and, and uh, down the street from me. By the time they opened, they had almost zero tappings in an area where they had hundreds before. And even though that location might sell a lot of kegs for them and be a very good account for them, they lose more on the back end of it because they're, they're going to lose the tap placements. And even though you don't make a lot of beer uh, money off the draft beer, the draft beer helps you sell those six packs, those four packs in the liquor stores and the grocery stores and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And usually there's about a three-year lag between losing the tap handles and starting to see a decline in package sales in the grocery stores and the liquor sales. Because that tap handle out in the bar and the restaurant is a reminder to the customer that that beer exists and that they like that beer. Yeah, it's a billboard. Um, it's exposure. It's, it's just kind of – yeah, it's a brand yes. building. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a brand building exercise. And if you're doing it right, you don't t- lose too much money on the draft sales. They're usually not a money maker, but your goal is to try to break even on that stuff. Maybe turn I don't know anybody that's done it, but, but <laughs> Neither you know, do I. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, draft beer is expensive to, to supply. I mean, line cleaning and just all, just all the moving parts. The classic examples that, that breweries like to use, especially for the, the thought of the destination uh, brewery and everything like that is stone. What people don't understand is that stone was a very unique situation in that when stone moved their brewery, from where Lost Abbey is right now to their new fancy place, the world uh, uh, headquarters and everything like that, there were no draft handles within miles of where they located. Escondido was a, a craft beer desert, and the nearest account was six miles away, and they lost that account. So they literally they lost one handle. Maybe they may have had more than one handle in there. But sure, yeah. um, so, so they didn't take a hit. When they first opened up. So a lot of other breweries looked at that and went, well, they didn't lose any business. So I can do that. And I go, but you're comparing two very different situations. There's a lot of breweries that are opening up in their like best area, a satellite location, and then creating a hole in the marketplace. One of the classics with that was another San Diego brewery. Look at modern times. <laughs> um, they came out specifically with the idea that that's exactly what they were going to do. They would look at the market, they would sell kegs, and if there was a area of town that they were selling a lot of kegs in, that's where they were going to put their satellite location. And in California, for every production license you had, you got five tasting rooms that you just show open up. You don't have to do anything other than just put a keg box in, put the bar in, and open up. No input from the neighborhood. I mean, you look at the North Park area when the Tornado located in North Park there, they spent 18 months trying to get a liquor license in the neighborhood. There was one neighbor behind them that threw fits. They finally got a liquor license, but it only allowed them to stay open until 10 o'clock at night. So Friday night, 10 o'clock, place is packed and you have to throw everybody out. Hmm. Modern Times opened up a place across the street and they didn't have to go through the neighborhood. Didn't have to do any of that. I mean, I had a discussion with the head of sales for them when they came into this market, came into Denver. I said, you know, so I want to ask you about this. I mean, I want to ask you about Portland because you just, oh, well, you know, we started selling a bunch of beer there. So we decided to open up a tap room there. I'm like, I thought I'd have to like Maybe get around try lying to first. <laughs> right. <laughs> just like, wow. You know, you just walked in and dropped your drawers. And uh, just like, where's the mystery? Hey, will, and, you, uh, will you carry my beer? I plan on completely fucking you in five. Yeah. It's going to be great. I go, why would anybody do this? And that's what people found out. And then their sales just completely collapsed. You know, I just, that's the point I was trying to get across was like, hey, 
this is not good for building your brand. You know, oh, well, Stone, I'm like, I, I don't know. Have you looked at the sales figures for San Diego in the liquor stores and the, and the grocery stores? I mean, their, their sales are in free fall. They, they used to have, you know, thousands of tap handles in San Diego County. And, and, you know, I was there 16, 17, and there was dozens of tap handles instead because they started opening up all these places in different areas of town, hmm. you know, whether they were growler fill station, you know, a new big gigantic restaurant. And people just got tired of that. And they're like, why do I want to carry you? There's, there's hundreds of other breweries I can choose from. Now there's almost 10,000 breweries I can choose from. Why am I going to give you money if you're going to compete with me? Yeah, so let me ask you, this is one, cool. of, those, one of those softball <laughs> questions, but I have interviewed other retailers, people that like, oh, and then actually Witchcraft in Austin was one of them. And there mm-hmm. were a couple of other ones I've talked to and some interviewed that, that I haven't released yet. And across the board, they've all disagreed with you. And... I don't see how. So I'm curious how you think that they, what, what their logic could be for disagreeing with you that additional tap rooms are bad for their business. Well, I'm not as negative about there being more breweries, although that's. I mean, I can't help if your theory is that putting a tap room down the street from your place is takes from your business, then additional breweries right. would too, right? Like a long enough timeline. At some point, yes. I know Michael Roper up in Chicago is, you know, they went from having a couple of breweries in Chicago to there's 85 tap rooms inside the city limits. You know, and we're very city limits of Denver. The number usually floats between mid 80s. I, I don't know if we've gotten to 100 ever. I think we've gotten really close, but, you know, because one's closing versus opening. The number is challenging. But the biggest thing is that there's been such an increase mm-hmm. in the number. You know, it happened back in the 90s when we went from having 400 breweries to 1,200 breweries over a, a period of a couple of years. It's it's finding your niche in that marketplace that's challenging and people developing the ha- habits and, and finding out where you are. That's more of the issue than the, the strictly the number because people will go, oh, well, you know, there's 13,000 wineries or however many wineries there are and everything like that. I go, but, you know, I've never seen a winery tasting room operate like a brewery tasting. Yeah, these are pretty small. You kind of enjoy a small flight you, maybe and you take go, off of the bottle, but you don't hang forever. Right. You don't hang at a winery. And the breweries want to say, well, you know, the wineries can do this. Why can't we do this? And like, Because you don't operate the same way. The breweries operate more like a bar. People hang, you know, and that's where it's starting to like you're turning the breweries into a bar. And instead of using the breweries uh, like they originally were, where, you know, it was a place to to try more of the beers that maybe you as a customer don't see in the bars and then maybe develop some pull through that by the customers going, Hey, I just had this beer from them. Man, you maybe you ought to think about carrying that kind of product. And there was a lot of that kind of action going on. Unfortunately, that's not what the market is doing right now. You know, I don't want to throw everything on the breweries on this kind of stuff because the actions of a lot of the retailers also have been horrific the last few years because nobody wants to keep any beer on for any length of time. And it's hard to build a brand. And, you know, that's that's putting the production breweries under pressures to do things, to act like those small, tiny breweries. But they, they can't. It doesn't build brands. I mean, coming out with three new beers every week, you know, maybe that keeps their tap room happy and keeps them, you know, people talking about them. But it doesn't really sell beer in the liquor stores, which is what their model was, you know, what they were designed to do. And so a lot of the larger breweries are having really are struggling of how to be two things at the same time. Whereas the smaller breweries, you know, just different permutations of 
you know, the seven hops they have access to. And, oh, it's just like insane. I mean, it's just the gamification of the whole industry is just mind numbing. And it's so much of what, you know, for so long we tried to stay away from. And, and you know, there's a, there was a beer writer who, you know, brought up a point. It's like, Chris, you know, sampling's always been a big part of, of the industry. And I'm like, yeah, but sampling used to have a purpose. Sampling had a purpose. And that purpose was if I ever saw that beer again and I liked it, I would probably buy another one. Of those. And now sampling, the only purpose is to get that check mark on untapped. To say even you though un- it. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say you're taking it, even if you're not doing untapped, because untapped, you know, when they do the studies, I mean, it's a small fragment of the thing, but boy, does it, you know, wag the dog because that little niche is very much wagging the dog and controlling how the breweries are releasing things because it's influencing those customers who aren't even dealing with untapped. And I don't think untapped had some Machiavellian plot to do this to the thing. I think it was just, you know, they came out with this neat little app so you could track what you had been drinking. And then their website people changed the app into being a better well, no, it's like Facebook and in general. Like Facebook didn't create 100%. assholes. The assholes went on Facebook and then just decided to start showing themselves. And same thing with Untapped. Right. Bunch of stupid right. fuckers. It's, 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 it's the exact same thing. I mean, their whole goal is to keep you on the app for extended periods of time. And so the badges and the, oh, the whole interaction part is it's being a better app. But being a better app has a negative impact on the industry, unfortunately. And, and I think that's that's sad, too. You know, every other industry that has gone down the path with all these crazy flavors related to candy and kids cereal and cartoon images have been just, they've gotten completely excoriated in the media. And I'm really shocked that craft brewing hasn't. Um, there's been some little rumblings from some sides from some nut job people, but I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. I know you're the old guy in the room, but I am curious what your opinion is because I think there has to be some, I don't know that we know, but. So when guys like you and I, and again, different generation, but similar story as far as what was available with craft beer, your first craft beer is an anchor steam. You, you kind of grew up through the imports and those things were by and large dramatically more quality, but it was a different approach to beer. You know, Belgians were really my gateway. What, how does that relate to a guy whose first beer today is a brownie batter bullshit stout? Like his entire perspective on what beer is and what it can be is different, right? Like, how do you see that? I know, you know, kids these days, and uh, <laughs> I appreciate you. Know, you kids, yeah, kids these days, and and, and and literally, they you have to realize they didn't, they've never had to look for good beer. It's there, yeah, and it, and it's normal. I mean, it's like beer isn't special anymore. Craft beer isn't special to them, and so they don't they don't have any qualms about butt plug sours with you know four handfuls of sugar crunch put in it after you pour it in the glass. I mean, just they don't have any quality because it isn't special. Well, and in it their defense, they're not going to order a full one. They're just going to order a sample from you and then click check it off and untap. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you should have seen one day during GABF. Some guy came in and he wanted to get a little taste, and we we would pour just a little tiny taste of snooter freak, boom, like that, and hand it to him. And the guy, I mean, he was he had been in line for ten minutes to get a beer. He gets to the front and he whips out his phone, starts trying to check it in, and I'm like. I grabbed the glass. I'm like, oh, hell no. 
<laughs> like you're going to seriously take a half out sample and want to check it in and you did it for free and you're going to block up the bar? Like, oh, hell no. Yeah, you can get And people around it were just, oh my God, people were yelling at him. It was, it was ugly. It was pretty funny. And I get some of that stuff and, and I get that, you know, I sound like the old guy telling you to get off my fucking lawn. But, uh, I'm like, God, we worked so hard to gain some sort of respect from the industry. And, oh my God, it's just like, yeah, it's just really hard to, to, to take seriously some of this stuff. It's just like, my God, you know, back, you go back a few years in the start of the craft brewers conference in, I guess it was the 08 one. Uh, and Paul Gatza, who's the president of the, the organization now, and he, he's just like, you know, if, if the first thing you think of isn't how to do a better job and make better beer when you wake up in the morning, get out of the fucking room. Leave us alone. And I wonder Just how many people away. left the room. Probably not very many. No, not very many, because if you most probably you were serious if you were paying that much money to come to the conference and everything like that. But even the ones that were there probably didn't want to admit it. But uh, now, my God, you know, it's like, well, you know, this person started out as a home brewer. I'm like, there was no other alternative. It's not like you could go down to Anheuser-Busch and knock on the door and get a job there or volunteer there and learn how to how to brew beer there. I mean, you had to do, you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, I talk all the time about Ken Grossman. You can get more information on how to brew beer and do it right in a fraction of a second than Ken was able to find out in a year and a half. Oh, for sure. Research. Yeah. He spent 18 months at one point trying to track down a copy of a pamphlet that was published in England in the late 60s. And he gets the pamphlet after a year and a half of trying to get it. And it basically says you can do this. It's like seven pages long. And it says you can make a brewery out of your own shit and make beer that tastes okay. And he's like, I spent 18 months just trying to learn that. You know, and he, he went to the brewery there in, uh, in Sonoma. It was one of the first ones there. And it, and it was tiny. It was, it was, it would be classified as a nano. And Ken learned from going there that there was such a thing as too small. There's no way he could ever turn a profit on this because the labor is going to eat your lunch. You know, all the different things that he went through just to start, you know, he had to learn how to weld stainless steel because there wasn't any, there was no equipment. And now you just got to have a checkbook and at least you could, you know, some time and everything like that. And there's so much information out there. And the number of breweries open up that don't avail themselves of that is just unbelievably stunning. No, they don't have time. I, I got to get the shit open for another 10,000 breweries open. Oh, God. Which is definitely uh, going it, to happen. Actually, that's, a, oh. that's an interesting question. So it's clear from the piece that you wrote that you believe that competition growth without overall revenue growth is bad for business in the retail tier. Like, right? Like oh, the, yeah. So I don't know, I would say maybe 10% of the brewers that I've talked to would agree that that's the same case in the production tier. Would it make sense to you at all that that could possibly be the case in the production tier? That we can just grow all we want and growth is great no matter whether market share grows? If, if you go back to like 15, 16, 17, apparently none of them were thinking that way. We're still net positive every year now, so people are still open new ones. It, it all depends on how you define the category. If you're if you're looking at category and including the craft beer people who I'll just say aged out of craft beer or sold out of craft beer as defined by the Brewers Association, then yeah, it is. And yes, we still go. Although I think last year's numbers came in a little bit rough. There was a little shrinkage in craft at that thing at, at that point, uh, which would be the first year in 
forever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the number of breweries is not going up at the same rate as growth is happening. And you see all the growth. The growth is at the very bottom, is at the smallest end of the scale. Yeah, the 75% make less than 1,000 barrels. That's pretty small. Yeah, that's small. And the larger breweries are struggling. Uh, some of the larger breweries did okay during COVID, mostly because they had replacements in the grocery stores where you had and liquor stores where you had to buy your product. You couldn't buy it on premise there for quite a while. They also had access to cans, which was became very important. You know, there was a serious crunch for cans. That was a rough one. So some of the breweries that had been flattening out or maybe had shrunk before it actually had some growth there during COVID because they could actually produce beer. They they were efficient. They were they had access to the cans. They had the placements. You know, I was talking with the Sierra Nevada people. They had a pretty solid year in in twenty and twenty one. So they were very happy about that. You know, I, I just don't understand the looking at the marketplace and thinking without any experience in the industry, like that that could be a positive thing to get into in a lot of marketplaces. There's there's still towns that don't have a brewery. I mean, that's where I'd be looking. Right now. I mean, that's why we came to Denver. When I moved out of Houston, there were were around 33, 35 places in Houston that had more than 30 taps. And that was in 1995, 96. You know, Houston's kind of big. It's spread out all over everywhere. And then there was some place to go get a decent beer within probably a few miles. You know, here in in Denver, there really wasn't a place. Everybody had a dozen to maybe 15, 20 taps. There were so many places that had, you know, like a dozen taps, but it was absolutely stunning driving around town and they were all the exact same taps. Like everybody had the exact same lineup. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, so so much of the marketplace was driven by the distributors and they did multi-handle discounting. They would just lock up tap handles and, you you know, it was all the same. It was back tire and it was easy street wheat, 90 shilling. And it was, you know, oh, my God, it was just it was the exact same list in every single bar. You know, and, and that's why I thought that there was some room there. I didn't want to open up in, in Houston. Number one, I wanted to you know move away from where I had been and. And uh, try something new. But I also wanted to go to some place where there wasn't competition. And I don't understand people, you know, that want to go into an extremely competitive marketplace. It's not like they have a bottomless pit of money or something like that. It's like, you know, they're going in, putting in a small place. You know, they're going into a neighborhood with, you know, six other breweries that are doing exactly the same thing that they're doing. Like, there's no point of differentiation. and. Well, they would argue that they, they did a milk, Milky Way stout instead of a Snickers stout, and that makes them different. Well, Come yeah. on, Chris. Well, there is, there is that. Yeah. You know? I mean, one of the other sad things that I think has happened in the last couple of years that, that I think is just one of the worst things is that I'll use the generic free sour beer, the funky beer thing has just collapsed. And so many people put so much love, so much effort, so much study, so much time into building that, and it just dropped off cliff i think part of it had to do with kettle sours i think that was influence but i think it was just that it was that hot bad for a while because it exploded i mean it, it went from nothing to 100 miles an hour in a couple of years you know, i'd had some because of drinking belgian beers before but you know with new belgium down the road from us here i mean i remember tasting some of those very early experiments out of when when they didn't even have their first 
set of four fooders. They were just out of single barrel stuff. I remember tasting beer out of PH1 when it was originally coming out and just the total just mind blowing of that thing. And then them putting together that whole fooder project, they went from four to 10 to 65 fooders. What was it like 2013, 14, somewhere around in there, they came to me and they're just like, okay, Chris, this year you can order as much lawfully as you want. <laughs> We're just going to keep feeding it to you. We want to see how much you can do. I did 54 half barrels of lawfully. We were doing effectively a, a half barrel of lawfully every single week, the entire year. And there was another bar down the street, the Star Bar, and he he did really well with it too. And he and, and Justin's a really great friend. And and he did like almost 40 kegs down there. <laughs> all of a sudden, people started putting out all these really fantastic I mean, Crooked Stave opened up, and he was putting out just some of these most just mind-blowing, beautiful beers, and it just collapsed. I mean, it was like the tap turned off, and it was just really sad. I think it's just, it grew too fast. I think the marketplace, you know, you thought it was something that was growing. It turned out that actually kind of was a fad for a lot of people. Now, there's still a lot of very devoted people behind that stuff, but it's not enough to support all those breweries. A lot of those guys ran up and created cellars and ended up with, you know, 50 to 75, maybe 100 bottles. And then they were like, oh, shit, in 2017, we need to stop buying this stuff. And so yeah. that was yeah. part of it is a lot of the, the diehards just sort of like overdid it. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think everybody overdid it. I mean, you know, that's just kind of the nature of the beach. But it was really sad because, man, were there some people that were putting out some amazing, amazing well, let me ask you the question I ask everybody. I'm curious your answer. How has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? You had it around all day. How did you behave yourself? I had some incredible mentors in my career in this business. One of the very first managers I worked with at Maggie Mays, he he had a pretty positive outlook on outlook on alcohol and keeping it a little bit in check. One of my best friends in this industry, Don Younger from the Horse Brass Pub in Portland, Oregon. I met him not too long after I opened up the bar. I think he was one of the greatest mentors for me about alcohol consumption, mostly about what not to do. He would full-on admit this is, this is not news to anybody. You know, I just never, I mean, I'll full-on tell you right off the bat, and most people know me know this, like, I love beer, and I love alcohol. I don't ever want them to tell me that I can't do this anymore. So I've always kind of kept in check. I've never been a real big day drinker. Like it never really did all that much to me. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that saved me. I always had a rule when I was working. I mean, yes, I would sample. Like if somebody brought in a product, I would sample. And sampling is taking a couple sips and thinking about it. I would sample some beers. But I didn't drink any beer until about two hours before the end of my shift. So I didn't have a beer before five. That was my own rule. And if I can't follow my own rules, then I can't expect other people to follow rules either. And that really came about because I had to work some night shifts. And I might start having, you know, it's nighttime. I might have a beer or anything like that. And I just... I mean, it come to closing time, and we did everything manually. We had a register, counting down the, with the <laughs> counting down the drawer takes fifteen minutes, and our manager sheet was like seven or eight lines, and it's adding and subtracting like eight or nine numbers, and when that's taking fifteen minutes, you're going like, no, this is stupid. Yeah, I've clearly uh, drank too much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm getting sleepy. I'm like, nah. So I've always tried to moderate my alcohol consumption. My alcohol consumption is 
definitely gone down. So I've lost like 16 pounds since I, I left, you know, closed up Flooring Rock, mostly because I'm having like two less uh, blind pigs every day. You know, that has kind of done that because I don't have that tap there. And, you know, so I might have three beers, you know, in the last two hours and then I'm okay. I, you know, I can still drive home and everything like that. But you know, if you stay longer, I'm like, well, okay, now, now I got to take the Uber home. And so I, you know, I've always tried to moderate that because it is so easy. I've, I've you know, been in this industry 40 years. I've seen so many friends and coworkers have issues with alcohol. And I've just tried really hard to stay out of that and mostly been successful. I think the first couple of years we opened up the, the bar, I probably overdid it a little bit. That's when I put the rules in place on myself. And I will tell you this, that everybody knew at the bar, they would watch me around five o'clock because it was like, I literally could tell what that it was five o'clock plus or minus like two minutes. I absolutely knew when five o'clock was without even looking at my watch. Your body knew it for you. <laughs> my, my body knew <laughs> when five time. o'clock was. Yeah. It's time. It's beer 30. That's awesome. So I appreciate you sharing the story. What do you think is the biggest piece of advice that you could give somebody considering opening a craft beer bar today? Well, the easy answer is don't. Uh, <laughs> Well, this is getting to be a repetitive theme on this podcast. Yes, I know. <laughs> the, the easy pat answer is don't. But the other the other answer is get to know restaurants and bars. Get some experience because it's out. Know what you're getting into. Know the pitfalls like alcohol consumption. Know how to do your numbers. I mean, that's something that I wish I had known more of when I got into this. When I opened up Falling Rock, I wish we had been a little bit tighter on that kind of those kind of controls and everything like that. I think that the POS systems these days make that way easier. Take advantage of the technology, but also understand what that technology is doing for you because understanding that will help you utilize the technology much better. Like, you know, knowing how to do it in a not necessarily literal manual fashion, but but in the, like know what those numbers are telling you and know what it represents because just taking that answer at the end of it doesn't always give you a, a good picture of that. Knowing knowing how to operate a bar, a restaurant, those kind of things in advance, you know, learning on somebody else's dime is the most precious thing out there. And I, I think it'll also help you if you do decide to disregard the, the pat easy answer of don't, I think it gives you a it gives you an advantage in the marketplace over people that don't have any experience because you just look at some of these people that have no experience and it's one of the things that I'm doing in my consulting is is, is like how you set up your draft system and how you set up your bar so that to decrease the amount of labor you need and increase your sales and everything like that. And you know, having a good draft system and setting it up so that you don't have problems, so it's easy to clean, so that it's easy to serve the beer and you don't lose beer to foam and you don't, you know, all those kind of things. That's, that's the kind of stuff that I'm really work, trying to work on in a group I'm in called Starter Brewery. That's really where I think my expertise comes into play on that. You know, that, that's kind of what I'm offering stuff i think that that's i mean that information's out there take advantage of it i mean don't just like you know go into it completely by hey i think this looks cool because that's just a recipe for disaster i mean that's a good way of uh throwing away a lot of money and a lot of time you know i already think i threw away a lot of money and a lot of time and i 
kind of almost knew what I was doing when I got into it. <laughs> right. Well, if somebody wants to look you up and hire you and dig into that little brain of yours, how would they find you? My email is is easy. It's king, K-I-N-G, at F-R-T-H dot com. That's like fallingrocktaphouse.com. I still have the domain name. I'm not giving that one up. And then I'm on Facebook, you know, and Chris Black, and, and you can always DM me that kind of stuff. It's some stuff that I'm doing. And you know, I, I, I've talked with a couple of people, a couple of people went, wow, I didn't know all that much. Ah, yeah, I'm, I know you're leaning towards not doing it, but sometimes that's just as valuable as doing it. You know, I had somebody from a state and I'm like, you know, there's a limit on the liquor licenses in your state and it's about $800,000 just to get a liquor license. And they were like, whoa, <laughs> like, Damn. yeah, you're not even to that point yet. <laughs> That's still a dream at that point. Well, there's a ton of value in having somebody help. And so I think obviously you have a ton of experience. You could help somebody do that. So I would recommend that they give you a call, hook you up. And I yeah. hope that some people do. So, well, I thank you for sharing the story. I'm going to let you get out of here. And again, yeah. I am going to reserve the right to recall the witness, Your Honor, if I yes. need your commentary <laughs> on things in the future. That sounds good. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a Danbury. Free play. Media. Media.